0: Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Miriam Bino
1: and I'm Joe Frochum and today we have Marquita Wiley. Marquita, thank you for coming in and spending time with us in American Narratives. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're going to get right to Marquita, but before we do, I I I could go probably an hour and a half just doing the introduction here. There's so much meat and and background and 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 Marquita's background and experience. Uh, I will say that she, early in her career, started with General Motors um, on the IT programming analyst side. Then she went into marketing and IBM. I think we've all heard of them. Um, Then Citi, and then Citi was kind of the first in line of a number of uh, financial uh, institution leadership roles that she played. She was vice president of systems development at Citicorp. Then was a senior vice president of both Citicorp Oatman's Trust and Bank of America and a variety of kind of key executive roles there. Um, she's also uh, been in multi-preneur uh, where she's uh, started her own thing and supported other kind of large uh, and small businesses in a variety of areas. Uh, I do look at her and people do look at her as a key executive consultant, especially in the area of mergers and acquisitions. So uh, we're gonna get more into this, um, but I, I would rather Marquita share all this than me try to <laughs> redo all this. Marquita, thank you. We look forward to having you and
0: having you talk about us. Thank you again, Marquita, for being here with us today. You know, one of the, one of the things that we like to get started on is learning about you, You right? Where does your family come from? Where were you born and raised? What can you share about that?
2: Okay, so um, an interesting background. And- I will share with you, um, I've been on this earth seventy over, 70, over seven decades, and uh, I think that informs a lot of what I'm likely to share with you about my background. I was born and raised in Mobile, Alabama, so one of the things that I think is really important and interesting to understand is I'm a baby boomer, and I lived in Mobile. I grew up in Mobile. When segregation was rampant. So uh, many of your audience, I'm sure, were probably born after the Civil Rights Bill was passed. I lived before that. So my young age or or my young years as a a young child through my uh, high school years spent in Mobile. And some interesting things to to, to kind of know about that is uh, it was a a very unusual and unique experience for me compared with what I see my children having or even, you know, Joe and Marianne, what you likely experienced growing up. Um, you'd have to be my age and have lived in segregated South to have that experience. And the kinds of things that, that, that I, I share with you about that upbringing is we were a very close community, and what do I mean by we? Okay, it's, it was a complex um, community environment. My family is goes back to the days of what we call the Creoles of color. And there's a yin and yang to that, and we'll get into that, I think, as we talk about my college years and some of my formative years as a young adult. But as a child growing up, uh, the Creole community was relatively... Uh, separated too. It was its own little segregated community and our parents and our, our, you know, grandparents did that to protect us. So you had, it was almost like a caste system in Alabama. You know, there was the white community, there was the Creole community, and there was the African American community that was not the Creole community. So we were called Creoles of color. And it's real interesting to know that many, uh, if you want to call it favors or advantages had been negotiated for our community that were not com- not negotiated, but we were separate. So uh, the interesting thing about it is we're most, mostly Catholic. So you come from a very strong, I come from a very strong Catholic background. Most of my neighbors were, were 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 Catholic, the kids I grew up with. I went to Catholic school. I was taught by the nuns, the IHM, Immaculate Heart of Mary nuns, which was a unique education uh, within that group. So I was in that what we call segregated uh, environment until eighth grade. And uh, the Catholic Church decided uh, about the time I went into high school, I was about 13 years old going into my freshman year of high school, that they would do a trial integration, if you will, of the high school. So I was one of six girls who attended the previous all-white girls high school. Interesting thing about it, you look at me on the cat on the camera, and you're not sure quite what I am in terms of my background. As you looked at the other six girls who were chosen, same thing. So they chose girls from our Creole community very specifically, based on our look and our scholastic achievements up to that point to go in on a trial basis. So I always say the Catholic Church even didn't. <laughs> didn't think we were going to make it. So they kind of did this trial run. That's with fascinating. The it's I've, a very fascinating story. I've yeah.
1: never, you know, it's interesting. I, I know the history of Creole, but I, I've never talked to someone who lived that history. Um, fascinating. How, how did those high school years go? I mean, how did that kind of initial pioneering integration go?
2: It was horrible. (laughs) And I always say, I would not wish upon any 13 year old, and I was, you know, started school at 13 and graduated at 17. I would never wish that experience on a teenager. Um, I have raised two children through teenage years. I have a teenage granddaughter now. And it's such a fragile time in your life. But the interesting thing about it is we were chosen, those of us who went through that process, for a reason. My parents were very involved coaching me through that process. There were many things that happened. We could do another, you know, series on just the high school experience. But the goal was, and, and my dad always told me this, all you need to do is... Make great grades, make A's, do whatever you have to, to earn good grades and, you know, graduate well and go on to college. And that was sort of a um, responsibility that was put on me. But it was difficult Um, from multiple perspectives is as a Catholic, my expectation was that the Catholic Church had a value system that would have supported me in a way that the other girls in the school who were Catholic, white or black, uh, would support me in a certain way. And it was a a major eye-opener for me that Catholicism by itself doesn't create a value system that says all men are created equal and to treat people fairly. And there were various reasons why people behaved differently when I was included, when I was not included, um, when I was actually attacked. You know, and, and I mean verbally, the girls were not physically uh, harmful in any way whatsoever, but there were some verbal uh, attacks that occurred. So the thing that I think is very interesting to learn that all of us came from a Catholic background, but even within that religious background, um, what I, my expectations were that would happen did not necessarily happen.
1: Yeah, that'd be both disillusioning but instructive in some ways, right? That maybe every organization is made of humans, and even though they might fall short of the principles that you would hope they espouse, which is interesting. I We could go a whole show on that one. I, I, I yeah, yeah. But as, as we move forward, very <laughs> sure. helpful to understand yeah. your context. Tell us about after high school. What happened? I, did you go right into college? Kind of What was your decision matrix when you finished high school?
2: I did, and uh, at that point, I had become very frustrated uh, in Alabama, and I chose a school in Detroit, Michigan. And you might remember that the summer of nineteen sixty-eight, the summer I graduated from high school, was the summer of the riots in Detroit. Yep. So I was going power, you know, power to the people, and I was going to fight the the good battle. And I had been involved in the movement even in high school, but to a limited degree because of my parents' oversight, if you will, of how much I could become involved. But as I went into college, I chose a Catholic women's college, Mary Grove College. Interestingly enough, the nuns who ran the college also ran the grade school. They were they were the, the instructors at the grade school. So the uh, IHM nuns ran Mary Grove College in Detroit. So there was this yin and yang of that protection, if you will, of being in that Catholic institution, all girls Catholic institution versus being in Detroit at large, which was the center, if you will, at that time of what I called a more progressive or more active version of the civil rights movement, where in the South and Alabama, everything was very peaceful, uh, nonviolent. Detroit was the point at which more of the the riots, more of the violent activity had begun to take place. And that was a real uh, conflict for me because of my own feelings about violence versus my need and my feeling to get involved in the movement at that point in time. So ultimately, after four years, I did graduate from Mary Grove College. I was a math major. So, you know, if if you're in the sciences or math, you really have to focus. And uh, there was only so much I could do relative to extracurricular activities in, in that matter. But there was a lot of influence that occurred for me. I grew my hair into a big apple, I kind of looked like Angela Davis, and I was really heavily into my power to the people for that, you know, four years or so that I
1: was in college. That's really interesting. It's, uh, it,
0: it really is. Thank you for sharing that, Marquita. You know, for the audience that, that is listening, what, how did that shape your perspective to the person that you are today?
2: Well, it's, it's interesting because I think it gave me an opportunity to really explore what I will do and what I won't do, what I won't do. And uh, it, I came out of college, I would say with a lot of clarity around being in environments where I could almost move forward and participate in an event that deep in my heart, I knew was inconsistent with my bringing, my values, and how I would approach, um, a solution to a problem and it really caused me to become even more grounded in who I was, who had, who I had grown up to be and allowed me to kind of define the edges, if you will, of the envelope around what I will do and what I want to do, what I will um, um, grab a hold of and run along with and that has a lot more to do with my value system.
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, first of all, it shows a lot of maturity on your part uh, to be 17, 18 years old, maybe surrounded by some level of injustice and discrimination. uh, But to stay not only not get, but to still stay focused as a math major at that age, uh, there's so many ways you could have derailed. How, How did you stay focused and graduate in, say, four years with a math degree when there's so much chaos and perhaps injustice around you?
2: You know what I don't know exactly how I did it, but I suspect that there are a lot of people in the family praying for me the whole <laughs>
1: that doesn't hurt no that's absolutely true well well let let this is a really fascinating story so tell us what happened next i mean you you got a math degree where what happened then
0: so
2: i I went on to general Motors and and I will share with you that I did not. Uh, have a job immediately out of college. In this day and age, uh, you know, a lot of people in your audience who are younger know that if you come out with a math or computer science degree, and back then there were no computer science programs. I was targeting computer science. It was housed within the math department. So um, I came out with that degree, and uh, many people did have jobs coming out of college. I did not. And um, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, essentially uh, the fact that by then I was really presenting uh, as the uh, strong uh, progressive. And if you can be progressive in the 60s, uh, that word we didn't use, we used more militant, I think, was the word we used back in the 60s. Um, so I presented in a way that, that I think was not as welcoming to corporate the corporate positions I was interviewing for. So it really wasn't until late in the summer of 72 that I actually found my first corporate job, and that was with General Motors. And I owe that to one of my classmates, a young lady from Jamaica, who also was a math major and a good friend of mine, uh, had taken a job immediately upon graduation with General Motors. And when she found out toward the end of the summer, that I was working, but I didn't have the job I wanted. You know, I was kind of that, you know, restaurant uh, waitress kind of doing that kind of a job. And she came to me and she says, you should give me a resume. You need to come to General Motors. They need you. I gave her my resume and a week later I was at work at General Motors. I mean, it happened that quickly. So she intervened for me. And uh, The good thing about that is I really began to learn in depth. And I will call that next two years at General Motors, the basis of my career to learn about information technology Uh, systems, information systems. Uh, GM had a wonderful training program. Um, I was coding at a level well beyond what I had done in college. Um, And, Really became very enamored, and that's when I started uh, grad school at Wayne State, and, and Wayne State's program really was called a computer science program. So I was at simultaneously working as a programmer analyst at General Motors and attending Wayne State University and their computer science program.
1: Wow, so so for one, networking works, right? That's one of those ubiquitous, oh, age old. Uh, it was a friend who knew you who advocated for you that got you that first job at General Motors, and and it sounds. Did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy the kind of work of programming and and doing the analyst work?
2: I love it. I am a nerd at heart. Um, I I can't help myself. And for me, at that time. Um, We were doing new things with computers that companies, that corporations, even large corporations like General Motors hadn't been doing before. So it was almost like we were on this new frontier, um, learning more about the capabilities of computers, what we could do with computers, what we could do with these new computer languages that were coming out. And for me, the great thing about it and what I enjoyed so much was I was in grad school learning more about the in-depth system science of computers at the same time I was doing more application development for General Motors. And it, it was all everything for me. Uh, I, I truly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, I could tell just not only what you said, but how you said it. There's good intonation. You sound excited. You sound engaged in, in kind of reminiscing on it. Um, and you were there for, what, two years, two and a half years. So yeah. and a meaningful kind of first stop in that professional career. Uh, but then you moved on to another company. Someone you, people might have heard of called IBM. Um, yes, yes. How, how did that happen? How did that transition?
2: Yeah. So, so, so that's interesting. Um- I actually came to grad school in St. Louis, so I was accepted into WashU's uh, MBA program. I came here for grad school, took a leave from General Motors, thinking certainly that I'd go back. But I don't know if you all know this because you're too young to know it. But we had a experienced a, a our experience recession during that time, so it was like '73, '74 in that time frame. First time ever in the history of General Motors they had a layoff, and the layoff was occurring at the time I intended to go back when I completed. the So sort of like all you know the, the whole game was off I had to find another company to go to and IBM was recruiting heavily at Wash at Wash U for our MBA class. So uh, it all came together for me very well. Uh, they hired me and I stayed here in St. Louis and what better company if you're interested in computers and information technology and, and systems technology than IBM. I mean, it was the ultimate place and I didn't even consider it until IBM or until General Motors went through or was going through that, that recession. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it was more happenstance than a true plan, but it was the absolute best thing that ever happened to me.
1: And there you were marketing representative. That doesn't sound like programming and, and doing any kind of coding work to me. How did, how did, You know, what did you do in that role and and why pivot to marketing?
2: Well, I actually started as a systems engineer and I went through the training program and IBM has a reputation and had a reputation during that time frame of having one of the best training programs for management development, bar none, globally. And I was a part of that program. So I started as a systems engineer, but ultimately saw marketing uh, as a more lucrative career path for me, so I was able to make the transition. And I was able to make the call. It was pretty easy for me to say, yeah, I, I, "I think I want to. I want to make the switch from the more technical role of of technical support, which is the systems engineer, to the marketing representative." And uh, I didn't make that uh, that switch before I finished the training program and actually came out of IBM's training program as a as a marketing representative. And what do marketing representatives do? There, you sell. Uh, computers so you sell computers and you sell software it is a technical role because you're selling uh, technical uh, equipment and and software um, however you are selling and for me that was huge because before then I had never had a sales role before and that was quite an important learning experience to my ultimate corporate career because I think had I stayed in systems engineering I probably would have stayed in IT and along the IT path uh, for the duration of my career. I may never have moved to, uh, actually business management, P&L management uh, and other areas.
1: Yeah. Honestly, what's interesting, I'm already seeing a trend. You know, if, uh, I'm seeing someone who's very open to new experience, right? Go ahead the yeah. first to integrate a new class at 13 years old off from uh, Alabama to Detroit. That's a, that's, you know, a world different then, then off to kind of, I have to believe there weren't a lot of folks who looked like you doing uh, in your degree or in your program when you were uh, going to college. Then off to General Motors, then off to IBM, and hey, why don't we try this marketing thing? I mean, you're still in your 20s at this point, and there's already been some pretty big life and career changes. That, that tells me you're pretty open to new experience. Do you think that's true?
2: Yeah, it's both new experience and uh, willingness to learn. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, along that path, nothing that I was doing was intuitive or easy. Uh, it It really required some brain power. And uh, I would say that for me personally, as a young child going back to the days of segregation in Alabama and not really knowing how am I going to compete? In this corporate world, and having some latent confidence issues all the way through, just because of the the, the early uh, experiences I had, I got to a point fairly quickly after the MBA and the time spent with IBM that my confidence level shot up, as you wouldn't believe, almost to a point of being cocky. I mean, I I, I knew I was as smart as anybody. I knew I could do anything that anyone else did. And the whole uh, veil, if you will, of segregation and what it implied was just totally torn away from me. And and I would say that really happened during my day at IBM.
0: Yeah. Marquita, can you please elaborate on that? Because I think that's a very important part here of the, the level of confidence as a female, as a minority. What got you from point A to the point of feeling cocky?
2: Well, you know, I, I I say I say cocky because I, I was actually tapped down
0: a few times ultimately, uh-huh. and, and, and that's, that's okay. I, I don't I don't see that as a negative mm-hmm. thing.
2: It's not it's not my style, but I did get to that point, and and a lot of it had to do with the fact that. Uh, and I'll share some very specifics with you. At IBM, probably one of when you're in the training program, one of the highest. Um, achievements you can make in that training program is to be president of your marketing class. I was elected by my peers as president of my marketing class. So, and, and there were other things like that. The presentations, there everything is competitive through that process. And as a part of the competitive process that I went through with an IBM, in a scenario as you said, Marianne, mostly white males. You know, you females. And only, I mean, there are three or four of us who are African American females. And to excel in that environment where the subject matter that we're dealing with was so new, and so many people uh, had not experienced, didn't know it. I was in a position to teach, train, and, help businesses make decisions around how they grew their uh, computer department, their IT department, Um, you get to a point where you get a lot of, you, you obtain a lot of clarity around how good you are, you know, how smart you are and any, you know, concerns or lack of confidence that I had coming into that was pretty much wiped out. I felt I could do anything. Possibly even fly over a building. I don't know.
0: That, <laughs> that, that's
2: a, an exaggeration, but really, I mean that company gave me an unbelievable amount of um, confidence. Well,
1: wow. So, so with GM and IBM under your belt, and still a young professional, you moved into a whole new industry in financial services with City. What, what drove that kind of industry change and job change?
2: Well, it, it, it's the yin and yang of, of thinking that you are smart and ready beyond your years. And within IBM, uh, there is a very orchestrated process for moving into management. And at the time I was at IBM, I was not managing people yet. And I came to the conclusion that I needed to manage a team. It was not going to happen for me at IBM for a period of time. I had some actual uh, steps I had to take and some, uh, you know, ticks I had to make along my Uh, career in order to get there. And I was looking on probably a three-year horizon before I would move to management. On the other hand, Citicorp had a management position available as a project manager in systems development. And I would have a team of seven people. And I jumped to that because I wanted to begin moving more into the management role as opposed to the if you want to call it worker B technician role uh, that I was in, or worker B sales role that I was in, so that's really what prompted me to leave IBM at the time. You know, it's funny. Ask me if I have um, regrets about that. I have had over time regrets. I'm my God, I was 24 years old. Why was I so impatient? You know, why couldn't I wait three more years to get that team? Um, but City was a wonder. City Corp was a wonderful company, and it was a good choice. It was it was not a bad choice at all. And um, I, I moved on from there.
1: Well, yeah, and so there's a level of impatience, and and I mean, if there's a nugget there to to kind of share with our audience, what would it be? If, if those folks that are in their twenties and wanting to kind of get to the next before yesterday, uh, how, what advice would you give them?
2: Well, there's several. It's it's complex to say what. I see looking retrospectively at, at my situation and part of it is trust. You have to trust your mentors, the mentors around you who are saying take time, gain the experience. There's more to be learned before you move to the next step. Uh, and my impatience on the other hand, thinking, well, I told you already about my confidence and cockiness that I had. I, I was ready to do it. And, um, I think that that had a lot to do with me making the decision to go to Citicorp. But I would say, listen to your mentors. Talk with multiple mentors. Get a better understanding and insight as to what is being told, especially if you're being told, wait a minute. okay." It wouldn't have hurt me to wait a minute at 24 and learn more, experience more. Overall, the result was not bad for me, but there were times when I was in my management role at Citicorp that I wished I had had the IBM managing people class, <laughs> the IBM um uh, meeting and management class, things of that nature. Because I knew what the I knew what the program was. I knew what the curriculum was. But I thought I was good enough. And as I jumped to city and actually had to begin doing it, uh, there were there were times when I said, Hmm, you know, I I you know, I really should have taken those classes. I should have had those experiences before I jumped in with a team of seven people. Because once you're managing a team, as you all know, with with your own team. You can't even imagine the dynamic of a team of people working for you and what's likely to happen with that team.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a whole different level of uh, you've got to be ready for it. 24 is very young. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And kudos to you to have kind of a, a you know, a, 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 you say cockiness, I say confidence to give it a shot, mm-hmm. right? I do think you learn through experience and certainly you got a lot of experience very early. You're at City for a good run. I mean, you were there, including the mortgage for, gosh, like 11 years. Um, yeah. I'm sure progressively uh, bigger roles, different roles, different types of roles. Uh, and, and at that point, I mean, you've been in some big names, General Motors, IBM, Citi. Uh, then you move into Boatman's Trust. What, what is Boatman's Trust? Who is Boatman's Trust? And why did you, why'd you go into that role?
2: Okay, so so Boatmans Boatmans is a regional bank here in the St. Louis area, and uh, actually we're limited to business in Illinois and Missouri. And again, as I say, I'm a boomer, so you had to be around them to remember the days before global or or national banking. Uh, Most banks were limited regional banks were limited in terms of their size. So Boatman's was the Illinois Missouri Bank. It's a predecessor of Bank of America in this market. So we were acquired ultimately by Nations Bank, and then Nations Bank ultimately acquired Bank of America, hence the name Bank of America. But that entire period that you see on my resume from Boatman's to uh, Bank of America was really essentially the same company. But I really went to Boatman's Trust because I wanted to go to a smaller company. My career had been with large multinational firms up to that point, and I wanted to get a feel for the small company. And Boatman's was, relatively speaking to where I had been before, a small company. But as I joined Boatman's, Boatman's initially, the well, the laws changed around uh, interstate banking, and we began acquiring other banks quickly. So we quickly grew to be an 11-state uh, bank. And I was a part of that process. And again, I'll have to say, I was extremely excited about it. I, I, I ran an organization. I was head of an organization called Product Development. And it's really funny when you hear these things, marketing, product development, at Boatmans, and then the trust company. Product development was a very technical role because all of our products, if you're in the bank, your products are... IT-based, so whatever you're rolling out, it has to do with the clients logging on to a system and the clients getting support from you and tracking their their financial wealth, if you will, uh, through our systems, so um, I was uh, head of product development there, um, loved it because we really were out on a limb in terms of the technology we were using, again, it was more of what I had, had, had done at Citicorp and at Bank of America, and at IBM, um, we were doing, we put the first trust portal on a client's desktop. When I came in the door at Boatman's, all reporting was done via paper. You printed the reports in your data processing room, you put them on a mail truck and mailed them to the client, and they might know 15 days into the next month what the value of their portfolio was. We actually built systems to put, put software and hardware on the desk of the client so that when the clock turned from the end of the month to the beginning of the month, they could see their portfolio value immediately. That was huge in those days. That is huge.
0: And it seems like you couldn't get away from IT anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: you know, and then again, it's because in financial services, almost every product, everything you do has a core systems base to it.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's funny, it's not just what you say, how you say it. You, you're very excited. It sounds like you really like the creationary stage of things, right? Uh, new Thank opportunities, you. stretch opportunities, uh, contemporary solutions, including like, you're right, moving to uh, from manual and paper-based to online real-time access. That was, that was seat change within the, within the financial industry, as it was in so many yeah. industries. And you were like on the pioneering side of that. I, that must be That's something true. you're very proud of.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll use a Citicorp term for you uh, when we would talk about what we were what we were doing in the systems we were building. Then we said, we're not on the leading edge. We're on the spear point.
1: And <laughs> I see, I love
2: it. it's, true. it's true. You know, and a big part of why Boatman's was interested in me is they knew where they were going, the trust company with their systems. And they knew what I had done. And again, networking. I can't say how important networking is individuals who had worked with me at Citicorp and who knew what we were doing in the arena of new technology development had gone to Boatman's and pulled me in to Boatman's. So it was really, as they say, the, they had greased the slide, so to speak for me. I just slid right in because we had worked together. We had been a part of a team. Uh, I had very specific technical knowledge in an area of hardware and software that they were looking to implement, so going in was very easy for me, uh, and it was it was fun. And I worked with people who I'd worked with before. There was there wasn't a lot of risk, if you will, in that move.
1: So, so after Boatmans, you moved in. A, where was did Bank of America acquire? Boatmans. How did you move into the senior vice president of Bank America role?
2: Okay, so um, Boatmans was the predecessor. Here in the St. Louis marketplace for Bank of America. So the actual acquisition series was uh, North Carolina National Bank, which became Nations Bank, acquired Boatmans. After that acquisition, North Carolina National Bank acquired Bank of America. A lot of people don't know that because they kept the name Bank of America. They changed the name to Bank of America, but the acquisition actually came out of the Carolinas. And as you know, our corporate headquarters, ours, I mean, I'm saying it, I'm no longer there, but corporate headquarters is in North Carolina because that was the acquiring company.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful headquarters in Charlotte. I've been there a number of times, beautiful place. All right, So you got acquired, or sort of speak. I mean, there was a series of acquisitions that put you in bank. What What was your role specifically at Bank of America? What did you focus on?
2: Okay, so... Uh, to begin with, I'm going to just talk about Boltman's for a minute, too, because uh, I, I call myself a part of the lights out crew at Boltman's. There are a lot of Boltman's employees who were not, I want, I want to say, how do I say this? Uh, happy uh, with the acquisition, really wanted to maintain independence. And uh, so there was a core group of us who pretty much were. Uh, very okay with that acquisition and stayed on board. So we called ourselves the Lights Out Crew for Trust because what happens in trust is that there is a big turnover and a uh, valuation that has to occur on the 31st of December. So we had to be in place in terms of the systems that we had with a plan to convert um the first of January. So we needed to stay in place, keep the systems running, keep the operations running, and then be prepared for that New Year's conversion, which actually allowed that to happen. So I was what you call part of the Lights Out group. And again, networking, networking, networking is what's important. You guys are in Texas. And a key part of the uh, Nations Bank team, the IT team was based in Texas, in Dallas, Texas. And so I had built strong relationships with the Nations Bank uh, technical group, who were physically located in Dallas, Texas, because of the work that we were doing. And as we did the turnover, I had a stay plan, and January 31st of that year was to be, or, or December 31st was to be my last day. They came back to me and kept me on board and moved me into more of an operations role, which, from my perspective, was a, a non, again a growth opportunity for me. Um, I had been in more strictly IT development, uh, testing, design, quality assurance rollout. And Ops really is the back office. It's the big bank back office. And that was a huge move for me. It was under the name of North Carolina, our, our nation's bank. And um, I had responsibility for a huge back office operation with about 3,000 people in my team. I had multiple locations. I had a team in Uh, Brea, California, a team here in St. Louis, I had a team in Dallas, and I had a team in North Carolina. So this was the first job I had where I had responsibility for multiple locations, multiple levels of management under me, and I will say to you that my mentors took a risk with me. They moved me into an area that I had not shown proven experience they stuck with me, they mentored me, they helped me, I learned. And as I say, I'm smart, I can learn fast, I'm a quick study, and it all worked out really well for me. And ultimately, of course, we changed our name to Bank of America with the Bank of America acquisition, but that was, that was a huge opportunity for me.
1: Uh, you've, had, you've had some significant and half to full pivots in your career at various times, it sounds like. And that's another one, right? Going to truly an ops role with 3,000-plus employees and distributed team and, uh, across the nation. Uh, how, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, why were you successful and what would be your advice for others who are put into more of a P;L kind of large-scale leadership role, people leadership role like that?
2: Um, I, I would say it depends on your team. And I really came to understand that while early in my career, I was dependent on myself and how smart I was and how I was able to make things happen. At some point between being the head of operations um, with Bank of America and then ultimately moving into the p role, it became very clear to me that I did not have to know everything. I did not have to understand everything, that I was only as good as the people on my team. And I began to cultivate and understand then that was more important that I really understand people. I understand how to communicate with people. I understand how to motivate people and I understand that my team will get the work done. If I'm doing the things I need to do in terms of setting the climate clarity on direction, protecting them as things change. So I really, I want to say I transform from being a doer, and an expert, if you will, to being
1: a leader. You know, what? one just quick commentary. It's interesting. A lot of people can't make that pivot. We do a lot of assessment for selection and development. And the higher, as you know, you go in an organization, it's less about functional and technical expertise. It's more about peer leadership, setting a direction, communication, accountability. And the fact you're able to let go uh, of one to embrace the other uh, shows a lot of capacity on your part. It's very impressive. So you were there, gosh, 13 years under the umbrella of of Bank of America, thereabouts. Then you had another career switch, kind of change of gears. Tell us about that, and and I think it kind of leads into what you're doing now.
2: Yeah. So at the same time that I was at um, Bank of America running a business, um, my husband had left Monsanto. He had had a long corporate career, too, and he had actually started his own business as an entrepreneur, my parents were entrepreneurs, so the, the seed was in me already. So I became aware of a potential business acquisition that was a real nice add-on. As a matter of fact, you guys will appreciate this. Joe was running Quest Management Consultants, Career Transition Executive Search, and we had an opportunity to acquire a, a staffing uh, organization. Um, and it was a relatively uh, successful but local staffing organization. So um, while I was still employed, I had begun the process of due diligence and planning to move in. Uh, I made the decision to go ahead and retire knowing that I had this transaction about to happen. Well, the transaction didn't happen.
0: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh,
2: one big thing if you're in MA, don't jump the gun. You know, yeah. this they say it ain't over till the fat lady sings, you know. Yeah. So you don't jump the gun at all. Um uh and I did, I left and uh the transaction did not close. The the owners decided to uh, to exit and, and maintain going forward. So that left me with nothing to do. And as you know from my background in the banks, I had been involved in mergers and acquisitions and in conducting due diligence and implementation. So I had the background already, and uh, people that I were working with in the M&A arena around my transaction said to me, "You'd be great at this. Why don't you consider doing this?" And I did, and I've never looked back. So I'm, I'm still, as you say. Uh, engaged in doing uh, M&A deals. And on the small end, very clearly, I am working in the what we call lower middle market. So these are businesses that have a value up to about $15 million. So they are the, I call them the salt of the earth, family-owned businesses, the uh, small uh, to medium-sized businesses.
1: Yeah, and and you've been doing this, gosh, for what, 14, 15, 16 years? This has been kind of your I'm not saying it's your final career because who knows what your next chapter looks like but certainly um, adding value and, and and I rarely see that someone who's gone from I'm not just talking companies big companies I mean nameplates IBM Bank of America to being a successful entrepreneur um, I mean that's got kind of built some new muscles and stretched you in some very unique ways
2: yeah, and, and it's it's really interesting because you get to a point when you're with a large firm, like the large multinationals that I mentioned, you have so many people on your team helping make decisions. Uh, you have a lot of people to talk with, and you uh, it, it's almost hard to make a mistake in that environment because you have such a robust team. You have all the best tools, everything you need. When I started my business, I was a company of one, and I had no tools. Yeah. <laughs> so, going through the process of determining how do I run this company? How do I start this company? Uh, what tools do I need? Where do I spend my money? Is this yeah. tool too expensive? Do I buy it now? Do I buy it later? Um, and, and buying a tool and deciding, and of course, a lot of these are like leased, lease arrangements. I just say, okay, I, I need to stop my lease. <laughs> I'm spending too much money and I'm not, I don't have enough revenue. And uh, ultimately, it took several business models For me to get to the point of where I am now and uh, my company as it exists is really just a legal entity that I work in as a 1099 uh, employee, but I have aligned with another firm and they actually do everything from marketing, um, software, environment, acquisition, everything that we do. And I really deliver service. And they do a lot of the uh, expense side. So I, I sit with a balance sheet, not a balance sheet, I guess I would say a P&L, where I have almost all revenue and no cost, but my revenue is limited because I do a share, a profit share. And that business model has worked for me. And I tell you, I am a retiree. I am currently in a position where I say to myself, I don't want to work the way, the same kind of a schedule I worked back when I was in corporate, which was, you know, 70, 80, whatever, it took to get it done sometimes I do have very extensive schedules if a deal is about to close there's just you just get very very busy uh, but by and large I can choose if I take on a deal or not take on a deal I can schedule my time in a way so as a retiree I really don't feel that I am married if you will to the work but in terms of work-life balance I can balance more in the area of personal, um, enjoyment as opposed to, uh, being, being overwhelmed with the work of what I do. And it's worked out very, very well for me.
0: That's excellent. It is. Markita, you know, with, you've had a phenomenal career journey. Tell us a little bit more about perhaps a challenge or a mistake that you've made along the way. And what did you learn from it?
2: Oh, my God, a challenge or a mistake. I had many, many, <laughs> many, many. And I mentioned one of you, you know, jumping the gun uh, to to reti- to resign, uh, to retire before I had the next thing in the bag. Um, and what's really interesting about that is up until that point in my life, uh, almost everything that I said to do, I looked at it, I targeted it, and it happened. And this was one of the first things and it was, you know, pretty far out in my career that that happened. So I I would say looking at the plan of what you intend to do and being able to put a substantial amount of probability on the fact that the next thing is going to come to fruition before you disengage whatever you were doing before then. The other thing, too, you know. Joan Marianne, I'll share with you is the importance of of, uh, mentors, your network, aligning with your network, and not burning bridges. And I can, at this point in my life, go back to every company I've been with. I mean, all the way back to my days in uh, IBM here in St. Louis. And name people who I work with that I still am in communication with, that are still helping me, that I still call on in the context of what I'm doing now. And sometimes it's just personal. It's just getting together to go out for dinner and enjoy each other's company. Um, so I won't say that, that was a, it, there was a mistake there because I can't think of a bridge burned. But uh, I would say that the lesson is a positive lesson that people are going to return and return and return over the course of a career, no matter where you go, and they will help you, gotta be ready to do the same thing for them. You know, you've, you've got to reciprocate as you move through your career. Uh, many people have called me, especially in the context of Quest Management consultant, and said, my child is lost. Can you talk with them about, you know, their next move, being a mentor to to children of friends, to grandchildren of friends? So um, all of that is important to, to people give to you, but you need to give them too.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more with you, Markita. You know, sometimes you just, sometimes you're at the top and sometimes you're not. You never know how the world, you know, revo- mm-hmm. e- evolves and, and how you're going to come into, into loop with the people that you worked with in the years past. Um, as, as we close up today, are there any other key lessons that we, we should take away for our audience today?
2: Key lessons is just keep moving forward. Put one foot in front of the other. Uh, continue to move forward. Think about your dreams. Live your dreams. Be confident that you can achieve your dreams and go for it.
1: I love it. You, you know, When I look at your early childhood in a segregated South to executive roles in some of the biggest companies in America to a successful pivot to entrepreneurialism and really helping a lot of, as you say, kind of grassroots or bread and butter companies to an active retirement, you've lived a very full life and your career has been a big part of it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Very impressive.
2: Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed this. I've enjoyed this conversation. It's caused me to walk down memory lane a little
1: bit. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. We do. If nothing else, we make you do that. But you know, <laughs> I, the last thing I'll say, it, it's, it's you're just a reinforcement. Is I found no one really retires anymore. You know, no, yeah, they just don't. I. They all want to keep a toe in it. They want more freedom. They don't necessarily want to work the hours, but they want to do what they love. And what I, I, my observation, just hearing what you say and how you say it is, by and large, you've spent most of your career doing something you really enjoy. Um, Absolutely, you know, and that's been different things, but it's always been in a creationary mode with an open mind, with this understanding. Maybe it's based on your Catholic school values. Who knows? That you know, you sow as as you sow, so shall you reap. Right? As you throw it out there, it's going to come back at you. And I think that's as simple as it sounds. How networks work as you as you give, you all have the opportunity to get, and uh, and that network has certainly set up a lot of opportunities for you that I think we can all learn from. So thank you for sharing.
2: Well, thanks for having me.
1: All right, well thank you Marquita and Markita. uh Mordica.
0: You all have a great day. You too. Okay.